Hello Earthlings and welcome to Exocast, the podcast that takes you far beyond the solar system, although not too far out on this episode, to explore distant extrasolar worlds. By now you probably recognise my dulcet tones as Andrew Rushby and I'm joined by my co-hosts and all-round good eggs, Drs Hannah Wakeford and Hugh Osborne. Coming up on the show this time, we have the pleasure of introducing another esteemed colleague from the realm of planetary science, Dr. Naomi Rogurney is on the show. Naomi is a postdoctoral fellow at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center and Howard University in the USA. She specializes in the observational interpretation of the ice giants, Uranus and Neptune, having studied both of them in detail during a PhD at the University of Leicester in the UK. Before her PhD, Naomi spent four years in China as a tutor and science teacher and continued tutoring throughout her PhD. Naomi is currently working on JWST, observations of our friendly neighbourhood ice giants, some of which you may have already seen, and we're obviously going to talk about those and I'm very excited, and also the rest of her work. So welcome, Naomi. Thank you. It's really, really amazing to be here. It's nice to hear British accents again as well. <laughs> <laughs> We've got a good range, a good range here. So let's start, if you don't mind, as we often do, with a little about you, your background, your path into academia, which, you know, we only get guests that are the coolest and have the most interesting backstories. <laughs> so they're usually not the same. And it's always interesting to hear how you arrived here in the virtual Exocast studio. Yeah, I had a bit of a weird career path, I suppose you could say. In school, it was pretty normal. I mean, you know, I loved science, like from a young age, went to a planetarium when I was a kid um, and just fell in love with space in general. I think like every kid does when they find out that Mm. space even exists. (laughs) And then I studied physics, loved physics, didn't really like biology or chemistry, so that kind of pushed me down the physics route. (laughs) And then in university, I studied physics with astrophysics, Mm -hmm. didn't like astrophysics, got put off a little bit by it, but I loved planets, atmospheres, like even like geography stuff, like geology and stuff. I I enjoyed that Mm -hmm. kind of stuff. So, but then after university, I kind of got burnt out with science and I was like, ugh, what, what can I do? And I just ended up moving to China, as you do. <laughs> just as just ended do. up going to China. Um, I had a friend who was moving there and mm-hmm. decided to just tag along for a, a few months for like an internship in financial services. Didn't enjoy that, but loved China. So ended up staying there to tutor and, um, and then eventually teach physics. And then that's how I ended up back in physics. Awesome. Was that teaching physics to international students or was it Chinese students who were teaching? It's actually Chinese students who are going to study internationally. So I wasn't teaching in Chinese. Ah. I was teaching it yes. in, in English to Chinese students. So um, they were the smart ones being like bilingual and learning in a second language and then also going over to the UK or sometimes the US as well to, to study at university. So which part of China were you in? I was in Shanghai. So... Mm. Um, big city really big city and it was a lot of fun a lot of fun but um yeah I eventually came back to do my PhD um which I didn't think I was going to do actually when I did my undergrad Mm -hmm. I only got a 2-1 and Mm. everybody had told me like oh you need a first to do a PhD you have to have a first and um so I was like oh I guess I can't do a PhD and then I was like you know what I'm going to apply anyway and Mm. I applied to PhD programs that that they did on the label say, like, you should have a first to apply to this. And I got them anyway. So, yeah, that was definitely a, a big learning curve. And it was the teaching that really 
gave me the confidence to do that because when you're a teacher like you feel really adult right it's like a really <laughs> it really propels you into adulthood really fast to be in charge of a load of kids <laughs> definitely I, I got a two one as well and nice yeah, it doesn't stop you from doing yeah. anything I mean the limit is a two one from what I understand and that's a mm-hmm. funding limit yeah in the UK anyway but yeah, no, just go for it. All the cool people have two ones, right? All the, all the cool people. All the coolest. People. I don't have a very good degree, let's put it that way, but it was a first. <laughs> <laughs> it's the quality. It's the quality of the teaching, as you say, as a teacher, but also, you know, the teaching that you received as you in your undergraduate was clearly enough and, you know, inspired you and you're enthusiastic about it enough to carry that on I say. yeah definitely I think it was the range of things that I got to learn in undergraduate like at Leicester we got to learn like I had physics with astrophysics so it wasn't just mm. the astro side we also got to learn loads of other stuff like fundamental physics and as I said like stuff to do with atmospheres and and planets and earth um, observation and stuff like that so that really helped with deciding what I actually was interested in yeah I'm trying to pin people to think that atmospheres are actually an astrophysics topic <laughs> yeah yeah, like that took me a long time to figure out because I was like, well, I like atmospheres and like thinking obviously Earth atmospheres and I like astronomy. Like, how can I marry these two things together? And so I just typed into Google like <laughs> atmospheres, uh, astronomy or like atmospheres, like planets. And then it was like, oh, planetary atmospheres is an actual thing to do. <laughs> and that's how I found my PhD topics to apply to. So Thank you, Google. So you started working on Uranus and Uranus and Neptune, the ice giants, during your PhD. What, what sort of things were you looking at? Yeah, so the ice giants are like my favorite planets and have been forever because they are super like beautiful, like the blue color is like really amazing. And we really don't know much about them. And I think that was what really drew me to them. Like we don't have things like Juno and uh, for Jupiter and Cassini for Saturn. We don't have that for Uranus and Neptune. So anything that we're looking at with space telescopes, which is what I specialize in, like Spitzer, is like all new stuff. You know, big questions that we, we don't know the answers to rather than those small questions that we are like discovering with Jupiter and Saturn because there's more data. So I was really lucky in my PhD to actually have data for these planets because a lot of people don't get access to it and I was actually meant to use JWST like James Webb Space Telescope data for my PhD and that was back in 2017 and then just before I joined it got delayed. Everyone on this call everyone on this call has has had that said (laughs) (laughs) and we all finished our PhDs at different times. Yeah yep (laughs) so um, it's a good thing that my uh, supervisor Dr Lee Fletcher at Leicester he he had this backup data from Glenn Orton over at JPL. He had this stuff from the Spitzer Space Telescope. So Spitzer is like a tiny version of the JWST. It's an infrared <laughs> telescope like JWST. So it looks at like heat rather than light, but it's much smaller. So less than a meter across is its mirror, whereas JWST is like 6.5 meters in diameter. So actually a fun fact is that the Spitzer main mirror is the same size as the secondary mirror on the JWST. So um, like the mirror that like reflects the main mirror into the instruments. Mm. So um, that makes you like realize how much bigger JWST is and yeah, all of the amazing science it's going to be able to do for things like the ice giants. So with those kind of observations with the Spitzer Space Telescope, it 
launched in early 2000s or so. And then it, it actually ran out of its coolant in about 2009. Are these observations spectra or are they just pure kind of photometric images that were taken? They're just spectra. So we, because of ah. the size of the telescope, we don't get any kind of resolution like spatially so we don't have any images so all we have is uh, a dot of light just like an exoplanet mm-hmm. observation and <laughs> you just extract everything you can from that one dot of light so you just get one spectrum for um, the entire disk of the planet so yeah we're kind of treating uranus and neptune like exoplanets using spitzer did you have to write your own algorithm your own software in order the retrieval package to do that um, no, I used the Nemesis retrieval package, which was oh, yeah, which was uh, made by uh, scientists at Oxford University. So there's like quite a few of us uh, across the world that use Nemesis, and yeah, it's a it's a complicated package that takes a lot of uh, <laughs> insider knowledge to understand. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's it's very powerful, so it is is good to use. But yeah, oh yeah, you were talking about the Spitzer space telescope, like kind of running out of its coolant um mm. so my data is actually from 2006 Forehand. through to or 2004 sorry through to 2007 so it was only in that cold period where it had the coolant that i'm using because we're using the irs or the infrared spectrometer mm-hmm. which which was it needed that coolant to work because it was in the mid-infrared so to our listeners that means she got the good data yeah. from spitzer <laughs> yeah <laughs> And it's really good data. There's like uh, uh, from yeah 2004 to 2007, we observed Uranus, I think, four times and, and Neptune three times, something like that. So there mm. are, like, are a few observations to kind of compare and contrast. And there, there are some really good observations, which are like the later ones from 2007 that we kind of focused on. Mm-hmm. Um, which, and, and it's really cool data. It tells a lot, tells you a lot of stuff. So, I mean, compared to the planets that I'm used to, you know, like Earth and exoplanets, where the star is is a really dominant thing, mm-hmm. the ice giants are, you know, so far out that, you know, I'd be interested to hear, like, does the sun actually have much effect or is it mostly internal processes that affect the atmosphere? No, actually, it's a lot of um, sun-influenced. Um, the sun influences both the circulation and also the chemistry. So um, a lot of the... Uh, so Neptune, for example, has a lot of storms and really, really high winds, some of the highest winds in the entire solar system. And that's all from both internal processes and also the heat from the sun. And even though it's really, really far out, you can see that Uranus has a lot of influence from the sun because we don't see any heat coming from inside the planet. So it's all external. Yeah, well, we think, we're not 100% sure. It could be that we just don't see this internal heat. Mm. But one popular opinion as to why this internal heat isn't seen is because when it was early in its formation, like a massive object hit it and kind of turned it inside out and released all of its internal heat. So Neptune is kind of the normal version of an ice giant because it's got its internal heat like the rest of the planets in the solar system, whereas Uranus is like weird and much colder than it should be and also it's on its side and and is like spinning on its side we've used the term there again ice giant and we've covered these in the show before but could you give us what is your definition of ice giant that is a very good question so (laughs) an ice giant is a gas giant that has more 
heavy elements in its atmosphere than the hydrogen and helium that are the main constituents of Jupiter and Saturn. So things like methane are a lot heavier and because of that, at the temperatures of these ice giants, they are usually in like either a gas or like an ice form. They don't have like a liquid form. Mm -hmm. But there is also speculation that the ice giants could be just rock giants and we and we don't know enough about them to really understand what's going on inside. Hey. So there was this really cool like chemistry experiment like in a lab where they put the like temperatures and pressures of the insides of both these planets and kind of squeezed like similar constituents so uh, water is what we think is uh, dominating a lot of the insides of these planets. So like normal water like you would have yeah. in your glass at home but really really squeezed until it's this really strange ice that is both hot and also black so it's like black hot ice that is another form of matter Mm -hmm. makes perfect sense it's not a solid (laughs) it's not a liquid it's not a gas it's like something else it's not a plasma Um, yeah it's not plasma it's like something else entirely we like exotic ice on on the show i think it's called like water ice 18 or something there are like so many ices yeah wow we did a whole episode on water ice 6 i believe it was Um, (laughs) i think this is the latest one they found but i'm not don't quote me on that but of these you know So I guess one of the open questions, or maybe one of the unanswered questions, as you kind of hinted at there, is are Neptune and Uranus failed gas giants or something else, you know, maybe entirely? Yeah, again, we don't know what really the... No, it's unfair. I took that from yeah. the table, Naomi. I'm yeah. sorry. <laughs> <laughs> we really have no idea about them because... Mm. I mean, and we know that there are similar mass planets in a lot of, like, exoplanet systems... And so we know that they're like a normal mass um, in the universe, but we just don't know enough about them. We haven't explored our own with Jupiter and, and Saturn. So when you talk about hot Jupiters in other solar systems, then you can kind of compare it to something that you know, because we know a lot about Jupiter. But when we're talking about, you know, Neptunes and exo-Neptunes and things, like we just don't know enough about our Neptune to decide on what's going on there, you know? Well, I think that nicely brings us around to the present and the future. What can we or are we learning with JWST about these ice giants? Yeah, so JWST, as I said, is so much bigger than Spitzer. (laughs) And so we can get amazing images. Um, I mean, recently, the image of Neptune came out of the JWST social media. And that was really exciting because I was involved in that as the subject matter expert for that program. So I helped with reducing the data and, and processing it to give it to the artists who then make it into a beautiful image. Awesome. And then I was also involved in talking to the artists and the writers to make sure that they know which features they should highlight and uh, talk about as like new and interesting for to kind of release to the public and to other scientists. So that was really exciting. And we're definitely going to link that and it's probably going to be our feature image, let's be honest. <laughs> yes, exactly. So. It's gorgeous. Like I, I thought my favourite image would be the close up, but and, and my colleague, the, the, the man who let me be the subject matter expert who like recruited me, he uh, wanted to do this zoom out with the galaxies in the background and I was like I don't know if that's going to work but oh did it work it worked <laughs> so well and like I eat my hat like it was a fantastic idea it's it and it is my favorite image 
So what are we seeing in the image? You describe it for us. So in the like close-up image, you can actually see like seven of the known moons of Neptune. So in that field of view that we get, we only have eight in the field of view. The others are way, way further away from the planet. So outside the field of view that we're getting, even in that wide field of view where we see right. all those galaxies. Wow. So it's only one moon that we can't see, which is Hippocamp, which was very recently discovered. So it's a very small moon. Mm. And we're hoping that when scientists get hold of that new data, that they'll be able to uh, kind of extract Hippocamp and see it a little bit more. It's kind of out of my wheelhouse to to try and get <laughs> the um, little moon discovered using JWST. But I'm hoping that it will be visible when some smart person gets to process it properly. <laughs> And was there, was there anything in the atmosphere? Were there storms? Yeah, so we see lots of clouds. So with the infrared, obviously, we're not seeing what we see with our eyes. So we don't see that typical, like, bright blue colour. But we do see these bright, like, white storms. And that is what you get when you get reflection from sunlight on the tops of methane clouds. Right. So it's like methane ice clouds that you're seeing, like, reflections from. And they've got, um, they're very, like, white in colour. So they reflect a lot of light, including the light from the infrared part of the spectrum and then the rest of the planet where we're not looking at those we're not reflecting that light off the clouds you're seeing deeper into the atmosphere and you're seeing where methane is absorbing the heat from the sun and you're also seeing emission from methane in the atmosphere from both the internal heat and also from the sun's heat as well so you're seeing a lot of things happening <laughs> and rings as well Yes, the rings are the most exciting part of the observation because, I mean, when I first saw this Neptune picture, I was like, wait, oh, this is Neptune? <laughs> I didn't, because <laughs> it didn't look like Neptune because those rings, we haven't seen them in this detail since we visited with Voyager and we were literally flying right past yep. uh, back in the 1980s. Like, we have not seen this detail in the rings um, and, until now. And that just shows how sensitive JWST is and the amazing things we'll be able to do when we do a real proper like long science campaign on these right. these planets because this was just a first look this was just a, especially to create these images to show the public what JWST can do this wasn't even for science this was just for like look what we can do and look what we will be able to do in the future so I mean I showed this image in my class today and I was like this is the first time we've seen the ring since before I was born and they all just looked shocked and I was like <laughs> that's rude <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. It's not that long ago. Like I'm the same age as Hubble. Backfired on me. Yeah. <laughs> so Naomi, does that imply that we could maybe figure out some evolution in the rings from maybe the Voyager images? And I know, you know, these aren't science images yet, but I'd imagine those might change on a on a scale that we might be able to tell something in the last 40 years or so. Yeah, so there will be things in the rings. So the rings at the moment, like we, we know quite a lot about them considering we've not looked at them a lot. Mm. Um, you know, things like these ring arcs. Um, so the ring arcs are like these clusters of like gas and dust in the rings that are like slightly more opaque. So you can't see through them as well. And they kind of rotate around it with the rings, kind of like a moon. And we've not been able to see them this clearly um, since 
forever because uh, <laughs> I think Voyager didn't see them at all because they were on the wrong side of the planet when it was looking at, at it. So um, these ring arcs are new and, and exciting and um, something we've not been able to view in detail before, really. So we have a picture of Neptune, obviously, but when do we get the Uranus picture? That's what I want to know. <laughs> That is a good question. I don't even know if I'm allowed to tell you. <laughs> but I assume there will be one at some point. Don't get into trouble with this. I feel like that's going to be like our next year. Is <laughs> Am I allowed to talk about yeah. that yeah. yet? Hang on a second. Yeah. It's going to happen though. Yeah, you could confirm yeah. it might happen in the future at some point perhaps. It will happen in the future. Yeah, I can say that. I'm pretty sure I can say that, that it will happen in the future. It will um, happen in the future. With the, so these images were from the NearCam instrument, which is like the the, the big, um, like beautiful camera on JWST. Then there are two other instruments, the NearSpec and MIRI, which are more for the spectra that we want to find. So the, the science and how, what it's made of and what temperature it is in the, in the atmosphere and, and all that kind of stuff. Those instruments will be used in, hopefully, in the next... In, in December time is when Uranus is in the right place to observe with mm. JWST because it can't be anywhere near the sun. We can't yeah. face the telescope anywhere towards the sun. So it has to be at a specific point in the sky for us to be able to observe both uh, Uranus and Neptune. So and the next window for Uranus isn't until December. So it just ended now. And, and it starts again in December. So hopefully in December, we'll see some more Uranus and hopefully next year as well, we'll see some Neptune images and more at Neptune images come through with those other instruments. So I'm going to jump back into some of the science here because one of the big questions that we tried to answer in our last month's episode was how do planets form? And do we really know how Uranus and Neptune formed compared to things like Saturn and Jupiter? Yeah, no, we don't really understand why they're there. Like, um, they're, they're, they're really far the out. Yeah, they're, they're really far yeah. out in our solar system. Like, they are, they are far. And I, I think with, like, current technology, we can't really see the same type, like, the same distance of planets away from other stars. So they're either not there or we just haven't seen them. I mean, that size, they're quite small as well. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like of the solar system planets, the Uranus and Neptune equivalents are going to be the, some of the last to be detected because they're both small and faint and so much so far from their stars mm. that, yeah. you know, things like that we currently use, radial velocity and transits are never going to find them. So Yeah, exactly. And we can't directly observe them. Yeah. Yeah. And we won't have that comparison for a long time between exoplanetary ice giants and the ice giants in our solar system, I guess. Yeah, the only thing we can compare is, yeah, the mass of the planets. So we can see these Neptune-sized planets, but yeah, they're mostly hot and next to their star. So we haven't been able to observe anything like our ice giants anywhere else. And really getting into the science with your recent Icarus paper, actually, you showed that a very small, uh, you know, change in the temperature of the stratosphere results in a, a significant longitudinal variability in thermal emission, right? So mm -hmm. could you us through the paper maybe some of the mechanisms that are at work there because it seems like it would be important for observations down the line and certainly for understanding any exo neptunes we might discover yeah right exactly so 
for my PhD, like the main motivation behind it was the Uranus observations were in 2007, which is during the equinox of the planet, which means uh, that doesn't usually mean too much for the other planets of the solar system. But because Mm. Uranus is on its side, when we have a solstice, so like summer solstice, it means that the, the whole pole is facing towards us. And you're just seeing the pole kind of rotate Mm. in front of you. And so you're not seeing... So if you've got the southern summer solstice, for example, then you're only seeing the south pole and you can't see any of the northern hemisphere whatsoever. Right. Whereas with other planets, you would see some of the other hemisphere because it's not got that extreme tilt. So having these observations on the actual equinox are really important because it's the only time of year where we can see both the north and the southern hemisphere so we can get an entire 360 degree map of the planet and and kind of understand uh, what's going on in both the north and the south Mm. so my research was using spitzer to look at how it changes as it rotates so again we didn't have any images so all we could go on was how the spectrum that we get from each picture and each like dot of light how it changes over time so what we saw was that we we weren't expecting much change because Uranus compared to Neptune at least is a very kind of dormant planet we thought it it didn't have much going on compared to Neptune but what we found was that it was changing a lot from one side to another so and we don't know why so we saw that some of the Uh, So you have the stratosphere, which is kind of in the middle of the atmosphere, and then the troposphere is below it. And above that is kind of going towards space. And so in the stratosphere, so a little bit higher up, we were seeing a lot of changes compared from one side to the other, whereas deeper down, we weren't seeing those changes. So again, this is kind of telling us that the change in temperature is caused by something high up rather than something low down. And that is important because remember we talked about Uranus not having that internal heat source. So this heat is coming from some kind of mechanism in the upper atmosphere, which is usually controlled by the sun. So yeah, we're seeing changes in temperature probably caused by the sun and like dynamics and winds and stuff. And it's changing from one side of the planet to the other. So the next step for Uranus Mm -hmm. was kind of announced in the planetary 2020 decadal from the the USA. Yes, I was there. You were there. So, So that set out that the next thing that needs to happen in planetary science is that a mission needs to be sent to Uranus. Yes, Could you talk us through what does that mean and what does that involve? Yeah, so yeah, the planetary decadal said that yeah, we should prioritise this mission to Uranus. And as I said, we haven't been to Uranus or Neptune with a dedicated mission at all before. Mm -hmm. So that's why it's been prioritised because we've already done Jupiter, we've already done Saturn. So we wanted to do one of them either Uranus or Neptune. And Uranus, because it's slightly closer, is easier to do with the technology that we have today. We need to kind of develop technology a little bit more to be able to get out to Neptune for the same amount of money. It's all about money. (laughs) It's a little bit cheaper to get to Uranus. So that's where we're going. And we can learn a lot from Uranus because it is so weird. As I said, it's on its side. It's like cold. There's loads of stuff. I love it took this long for you to, to That was the be, first one. Yeah, that was the first gone, one. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> to be influenced it was by just Uranus. So many in a row. 
<laughs> We're all sensible graduate scientists here. That was the, come on, that was the first one that got me. Oh, <laughs> I know everybody always has a go at me for saying Uranus instead of Uranus, but Uranus, to be fair, is like the the British version. And also, I, see, I say Uranus. I don't really, know. I think I, think, I, think I thought we had a chat on the show about it. Like we need to make a decision one way or the other about how we're going to pronounce this world. Most Americans I know say Uranus, and most English people say Uranus, I know. I say and Uranus because I can't okay. say Uranus. Yeah, people yeah, changed exactly. it so That's that they why. don't have to say it. But I do a lot of engagement with kids, and if you say Uranus, they laugh. They love why it. Why would you not want that? They love it. Exactly. Yeah. They love it. And so do so, we. Yeah, but it did exactly. take a little bit longer. <laughs> Nobody is too old for a butt joke. Yeah. Nobody. <laughs> that's, that's <true>. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what would this mission kind of entail? Probes. <laughs> probes. <laughs> yes. not you, so, so not probes as opposed to orbiters. Is that the uh, distinction? Um, no, they'll be, they'll be both, hopefully. Okay. So at the moment, like people are still discussing. There is a lot of chat and meetings being organised and uh, talks and, and workshops and town halls. You know, all, all the scientists are coming together in all sorts of ways to <laughs> discuss what the best way would be to visit Uranus. So it would be... The best thing would be to get a Cassini-style mission. Mm-hmm. So we have Cassini-Huygens. You have a an orbiter that orbits the planet, taking lots of beautiful pictures, like with a magnetometer on it to, to measure all the um, magnetic field and, uh, and a spectrometer on it to look at the atmosphere. And then you would want some kind of probe to either go to one of the moons or to probe into the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. We really want an atmospheric probe as atmospheric yeah. scientists, but... There are a lot of interesting moons as well around um, nope. around Uranus. Yeah. So, I know. <laughs> Is yeah, it right. difficult to... <laughs> given the tilt of the rings, it must be slightly more complicated than something like Saturn to get into orbit and to visit... Uh, you're that's what I thought that is something for engineers I do not know how right. like like rocket yeah. scientists they need to sort that out because also <laughs> like a lot of the time when they're organizing a mission like they will get into you know the the area of the magnetic field that isn't so what's it called radioactive you know they'll they'll yeah. slip into that area where they can go where it won't like ruin all the cameras and stuff but Uranus's magnetic field is unknown and all over the what is known all is over the place all over the place yeah. <laughs> it's, they think it's a corkscrew coming out the back so i really don't know how they're going to model where they put the what's orbiter what's the back <laughs> yeah where's, where's the back <laughs> yeah like like <laughs> uranus is anus uranus has got like a little twister of yeah, things yeah, coming yeah. out it's back so end you know how yeah. normally there would be like a like a, you know the bow shock of the of the magnetic field and then it kind of goes back it's like being pushed oh, back right. by the solar wind right because uranus is on its side as it spins that gets corkscrewed up Ah. strangely and and they think yeah it becomes a corkscrew out the back of like away from the sun i guess it probably depends on the time of or the the season on uranus right um at yes. the equinox it's side on and at, when the pole's pointing us it's going down the barrel of the magnetic field or something right i don't know but it is still always on its side though so and and the right the dipole is always going to be like that so it is always going to be like strangely oriented no matter what season it's going to be and yeah, obviously it will change between the seasons as to how weird it's going to be and like what kind of weird yeah. but it will be weird all the time so yeah it's going to be very interesting to find out how they get over these problems engineers 
figure it out. Yeah, engineers, rocket yeah. scientists, you know, they'll do their job. But I mean, one of the, the really key things is that these missions, you know, if we can get something like the Cassini mission, that lasted a really long time, way longer than, than it was supposed to. And that's thanks to the actual kind of structure of it and the, the power of it. Mm-hmm. So it was itself powered by a, I think it was like a more of a nuclear device heater yeah. rather than Eugene. what we see for Juno, which is solar sails. Mm-hmm. So... Is that kind of the key for getting so far out? Because, again, it's twice the distance from from us uh, than Saturn is. Yeah. So you're, you're going even further and, and further out every time. Yeah, they're definitely going to be relying on, like, radioisotope, like, generators mm. and heaters to run everything and, and keep the power and the communications up. And this is kind of why we can't go to Neptune right now, because we need more development of these radioisotope generators to make them lighter and better for longer distances. And obviously, the, the further out you go, like the more fuel you need to get there. And um, yeah, it's all a lot of complicated pros and cons to to everything and everything always comes down to money i suppose i guess one of the problems will be that it might take a long time to build and then arrive at uranus right Mm -hmm. what's the time scale i guess we're talking about 20 plus years here so they want to actually try and make it soon um so they want to start uh, well the community obviously wants to start straight away but nasa (laughs) nasa i think they said that they because of monetary constraints or or whatever barriers they have um they won't be able to start it for like until like 2026 or something and and then yeah yeah and um what we really want to get there for around 2040s because it's at a good point in its season in the 2040s if we wait any longer than that i think we are then at another solstice which means that uh, so when Voyager flew past, mm. it was at a solstice, mm. and so we don't want to get the same kind of data. I mean, it, w- it won't be in, it won't be useless to get the same data as Voyager, but obviously scientists kind of want to see it at a different point in its season, so that we get more variable data and we can see a little bit more about how the planet works at different seasons. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So it would take about twelve to thirteen years to get out there, or something like that. Yeah. 12 to 14, yeah, depending on how we do it. So we would really want a Jupiter flyby to be able to maximise the amount of mass that we can take there and also, like, shorten the, um, like, decrease the amount of fuel we need to get there and also shorten the time scales to get there as well. But there's also the new SLS, which is the being tested with the Artemis. Thanks so well. Yeah, it's Quite not nice. not happened yet. It should do soon, hopefully. <laughs> so once that is hopefully made ready and safe, that uh, SLS system is like ultra heavy or whatever they call the new brand of <laughs> space rockets. rockets. Yeah, You're going down um, the extremely large telescope route with the yeah. ultra heavy that's going to be extremely ultra heavy. heavy and- yeah. yeah. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> So these new ones could cut off up to four or five years off the the travel time. And also um, they might mean that we don't need that Jupiter flyby as much, which would be good. We're not constrained to timing as much. Exocast.
I was going to ask, I was quite jealous to see that you have an IMDb page, <laughs> which um, apparently Do comes I? through uh, some of the psychom that you, that you did. Um, so it's, uh, <laughs> this it is the like to me. You're finding this out? Yeah. No. And, and so does Hannah. I checked this as well, yeah. and I was like, "Oh, I do? you guys, it's just the two no of us." Way. I oh, can't wait. believe it. Oh, I know. I felt, I felt left out. I'm going on my account. Um, Hang on. Oh my god! Oh, I mean, how great that was this? through a physics skill PBS thing that you were involved in. Do you do a lot of uh, psychom, and how important is that to you? Yes. Oh my gosh, it's like my favourite part of the job, to be honest. Cool. I've always done it since I was in the PhD. Obviously, teaching. Oh, amazing. That's me. <laughs> For the listeners, Naomi's just seeing her IMDb page. <laughs> yeah, that's so amazing. Oh my gosh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to Google it as soon as I get off this call. <laughs> I'm going to send it to everyone. That's amazing. So yeah, I, I started it obviously when I was a teacher uh, and a tutor in, in China. That was like where my interest in like communicating science came from. And obviously where I like honed my skills of how to explain complex things to newcomers to the to topics. And uh, so that's like where my love came from. And then in PhD, I just did a lot of it as much as I could. Anytime anybody was like, do you want to go and speak to a school and take a blow up planetarium? I was like, yes. Um, <laughs> or like doing talks at the National Space Center, because Leicester's really lucky to have that resource. The, the National Space Center is like just up the road and they do a lot of outreach. Uh, obviously, it's like their entire job. And um uh, I got to yeah do talks for them and workshops and and all sorts of things. So it was always a, a big, a big thing for me. And actually, it's the reason why I probably got this job at NASA, um, is from doing communication so much because they wanted uh, one of the main parts of my job is to communicate about the JWST and its capability for the solar system, not only to my like the science community, mm. but also to the general public and to like kids and university students, etc. So even weird hybrid formats right. like us, right? Which were kind of scientists, but we're also like yeah. uh, doing little little popular science thing here as well. So yeah. there's a whole range of audience. And yeah. I think it's a really important part of science for sure. Especially space science, because I feel like space science is like a gateway to all other sciences yeah. like that's how yeah, like the gateway drug exactly so like kids get excited about science because of space because you know it's cool and then they're like oh i can also do like i don't know think of another science thing um maths <laughs> maths <Just think>. things <laughs> accounting <laughs> yeah Baseball. IT, yeah, you know, all of the STEM things. So I could be a doctor, you know, people are like, oh, I like space, oh, I'll be a doctor. So, you know, we're saving lives in an indirect way. <laughs> <laughs> wow, you are good at this. Um, <laughs> with that, I, I think we're, we're going to pivot to what we ask from all of our guests, and that is to help us adopt a new planet into our weird and wacky family of exocast adopted worlds. So... What have you chosen? And I'm guessing it's not an exoplanet. It's not an exoplanet. No, I did not get into um, exo like planet science because I was sad that you just couldn't look at them. I like to look at my planets. Um, like quite We're up. pretty sad for you. <laughs> so I really struggled with deciding between Uranus and Neptune, but I love Uranus. I love it. Of course you do. It's because it's weird. I love a, a weirdo. Like, I'm a bit of a weirdo, so, you know, the, the weirdo of the solar system, that's going to be my choice. Like, it's on its side, it's, like, colder than it should be, it's uh, still, it's a cool, cool colour, it's, like, teal, like, how cool. And, yeah, 
barrel rolling around the solar system. Yeah, with like its corkscrew magnetosphere, like, oof. You essentially spent the fun. whole episode explaining why you've chosen yeah, Uranus yeah, exactly. as your adopted planet, and they're all fantastic reasons. <laughs> yeah, and it has a cool name. <laughs> we didn't laugh at it once on the show. I don't know how much our editor's going to leave in of that, of us being immature, but hopefully a good amount. <laughs> it's the butt of the show now. I spent my whole PhD studying the gases of Uranus, so... Yeah, you did. I deserve this. <laughs> I mean, the name of the episode, The Gases of Uranus. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us, Naomi. It's been amazing to have you on. To, Thank you. To hear about the gas giant, or the, the ice giants in our solar system, I should say. <laughs> been great to be here you guys are a hoot is there anything else you wanted to cover i didn't talk about like university commissioning i did some of the moving target and oh cool and uh scattered light which was used i guess this this week to follow didymus yes that we tested um another asteroid for um because it was way way over the the threshold of what they thought they could track so we were the ones who were testing the um, like test subjects for that to find out whether we could actually go up to, it was like 100 uh, milliarc seconds per second, I think. It was like crazy. It was four times the speed that they thought yeah. they could do. Yeah. So <laughs> And when we did the first stuff, we had tested 60, which is double. So when we went all the way up to 100, it was like, yeah, okay, cool. We could do this. <laughs> which is pretty exciting. Although there was a, a very fine. small amount of time where me and my colleague could not find the target. So we were like, it's failed. And then my, my colleague was like, no, 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 it's here. I see it. It's, it's just small. <laughs> <laughs> so that was exciting. Yeah. Almost couldn't, but did. Almost couldn't, but did. Yeah. I don't know when that data comes out, actually. It should be, it should be soon, right? Has it come out yet? Oh my God, I haven't been on Twitter. There were raw images, but I don't think anyone's reduced it and got rid of the saturation and stuff. Yeah, my colleague is doing it. I think he's been up for about oh. two days doing it. Or when oh, no. did it? It's like last night. When when did it happen? It was on Monday. No, it was the night before. It was Monday night. Yeah, so I think he's been up for about two days doing it. Yeah. Oh my god! But by the yeah. time the show's out, there might be some some of that data available. Oh, yeah. yeah, probably. And we can have you partly to thank for that. So thank you. So much. <laughs> I encouraged my colleague to do it well. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us, Naomi. It's been amazing to chat. Thank you. And, you know, we've learned so much about the ice giants. And I hope you have too. Don't forget to look out for our other news episode from this month, which will be out in a week or two. And let us know what you think about the show on our Twitter at XO underscore cast. And on our website, you can find all of the previous shows as well at exocast.org. You can help support the show and the Exocast team by heading to buymeacoffee.com slash Exocast. Every coffee is four bucks and each donation over $15 will get you a shout out on the show. And a huge thank you to Peter McKellar Elvie and Dave Gallagher for their donations this month, which is really helping us edit and host the show online. So yeah, a big thank you to them and all of our past donors, of course. You can get your hands on some Exocast merchandise, t-shirts, stickers, and whatever you want at exocast.threadless.com. The show is edited by Fergus Hall and is available wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again so much for listening and we're going to see you next time. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Exocast. You have been listening to Exocast. The Exocast team is Dr. Hugh Osborne, a KOPS Test Postdoctoral Fellow at the University of Bern in Switzerland, Dr. Hannah Wakeford, a lecturer in astrophysics at the University of Bristol, and Dr. Andrew Rushby, a lecturer in astrobiology at Birkbeck, University of London. 
Our podcasts are edited by Fergus Hall and are made possible through your kind donations. Find out more on exocast.org. Exocast. I have exoplanets.